morning, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP, Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have with me today Representative Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro. Hey, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And John Hagen, who is also the chair of the Wyndham County Democratic Committee, which is a mouthful to say, but we're so glad you can be here this morning. Thanks, John. Thanks, Olga, and uh, good morning, Emily. Good morning. So we are here to talk about the 100th, 100th anniversary, or the centennial, celebration for the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, at least for the purpose of this conversation, we're kind of looking at as the mark of women in the U.S., kind of the mark of their official start of political power, and what has happened over the past 100 years, and what's happening now. Where have we come, and where do we still need to go? So, I want to, John actually brought this um, to our attention. He and I are working on a project together where we will be interviewing all the female candidates and office holders in Wyndham County at the county level and up. Um, so share, um, states attorneys, house reps, senators, uh, high bailiff, you know, uh, all all those county seats and up. So uh, that's why John is here with us today. And I'm curious, John, I want to start with you actually to see why why did you feel this was important to, to hear these stories now? Because I think a lot of people aren't even realizing it's the 100th anniversary. Yeah. So first of all, I um, uh, thank you for, for doing this, uh, this topic. Uh, I think it's a great topic. I would love to say it was my idea because uh, it made me look good. But, but really, uh, really, credit goes to uh, a Vermont Academy senior from Vernon, Vermont, named uh, Matt Sorensen, who identified it and said, "Hey, what are we doing to recognize the hundredth anniversary for uh, women's suffrage?" And uh, I felt a little foolish at the moment because I was like, "I don't know. We hadn't even been, or at least I personally had not been tracking it." But as soon as I heard it, it was one of those aha moments of, wait a minute, uh, there's two interesting parts here. One is it's a centennial anniversary and that's always a great time to do a retrospective. But the second is how did this come up on us? Uh, and I say us, I guess on this call today, I'm representing every man. Um, so <laughs> gender specific and every man. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that this, in all the political drama that's going on, this really hasn't been really uh, brought up at all. Well, I think for me, what I found interesting when you mentioned it to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, totally slipped slipped my calendar as well. But what I realized for me is, you know, a hundred years is enough time for us to start taking um, women's right to vote for granted. It's been enough generations that it's it's ingrained now. At the same time, we have not elected a female president in the United States. Vermont has not elected many women to high office, including Congress. Um, 
So Penny. what? Right. So what does that say for women's political power a hundred years later, at both the national level and the Vermont level? If I could jump in with some fact checking for a moment here, um, the Commission on Women has been working on this centennial um, celebration for quite a few years as part of the Women's um, Suffered Centennial Alliance, which is led by the League of Women Voters. And there were lots of really exciting things planned for the rollout for this summer that have mostly been put on hold due to the thing that's been putting everything on hold lately, which is COVID. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that, that 100th, it's the 100th anniversary of white women's suffrage. Mm. And so when we think about the memory um, being 100 years old and sort of old enough to forget, I think it's important to remember that, um, let's see, sorry, I'm gonna scroll through my dates here. In 1924, um, Congress gave Native American women the right to vote, but it wasn't until 1962 that it was extended, that all states extended it. Um, Asian Americans often didn't have the right to vote until the 50s. And so Black women also. And so we have communities um, and demographic groups who like, this is very much still a present generational memory. And I think in other states that might play out much more broadly when we talk about how Black women are sort of the backbone of the Democratic Party. And I think that's very true in other states. And I think part of it is because that fight to vote is still so present between um, you know, how the Voting Rights Act has been pushed back, how polls are still very hard to access in marginalized communities, and that you know, it's people's grandmothers that weren't able to vote and now can. And so it's interesting to think about how this might play out so differently in other states than it might in Vermont with our um, majority white population. Thank you for that reminder, Emily. I really appreciate it. And I was really showing my lived experience as someone who grew up in Vermont and has basically voted my entire life in Vermont because when the only times I've lived outside Vermont, I lived outside the United States. So um, I thank you for yeah. for reminding me of that. You know, that's um, that also when I think about Emily, what you just shared. Um, a lot of and I have a tendency also to view history in very um, off and on. So in 1776, we got the right to vote, but we being men and specifically men with property, not white men with property, um, and then. Um, following the Civil War, um, Black people got the right to vote, but that was a, and actually that's a very good warning sign that that's not an, a, once it's turned on, it's on forever. Mm -hmm. um, and then women's suffrage is this other point. So we look at these discrete points uh, and really it's, it is a continuous process. What we see, uh, I think in American history is the ever expanding opportunity for individuals to vote but that that uh, arc of progression is not it's not constantly in one direction we have seen definitely seen backslips on it and that should be a warning to all of us i mean look at how voter suppression um, is occurring today uh, even as we're giving people the right to vote we're removing their ability to do so mm -hmm. and i you know vermont is one of only 
a few states that um, folks with felony records or folks who are incarcerated can vote. Mm. And what I found when I was knocking on doors and talking to voters is that a lot of people with felony records didn't know that they had the right to vote. And I would, you know, I remember one person that I like really got in an argument with. I'm like, no, really, you can. And he said, no, I can't. And I was like, okay, I'm going to come back with some paperwork to like, so maybe we can get on the same page with this. Um, and so some people are, you know, disenfranchised because they don't even know their rights. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out then is the gender uh, what is this what is then the significance of the of the 19th amendment is it just another point on the spectrum or is there a, is it a tipping point where something significant changes hmm. it, I don't um I mean, personally, I don't tend to think about history in terms of tipping points. I think of it as um, sort of larger movements and groups of people. And so in some ways, some people point to white women's suffrage and that 100th anniversary of the tipping point of when white women left black women behind in the fight for feminism for the first time. Um, because it was a multiracial movement and then white women accepted gains and left their sisters behind. And so it's a tipping point for some stuff. Um, I mean, it's sort of an interesting, it is, it's part of a really, it's part of a much slower evolution of, you know, as you describe. Yeah, but it is a, it's a structural point. I mean, it is an amendment. Those are mm -hmm. rare, they've gotten even rarer. Um, and in that way, it, it does, put a stake in the ground. Um, it is hard to back off of that stake. So in that way, um, I think it, it does represent a significant institutional change uh, mm -hmm. that uh, that has to be, even if you if we do slip backward, it has to be at least reconciled. Um, what's interesting is, you know, it's been a hundred years. So um, where are we today? Um, have have women, if we just even looked at white women, have white women then seized upon that political power um, and ad ad advanced as far as we, we thought they would within 100 years? Well, we see an interesting dynamic, I think, in um, voting patterns. And actually, I think many patterns of um, women's engagement with public life that women are um, likely to vote for other women, but are also willing to vote for men. Um, the same way women are willing to watch films about most anything, but only women are likely to watch movies about women. Um, and I think we see a similar dynamic with men are much more likely to vote for men and mm -hmm. will occasionally vote for women. So I think we still see a bias towards voting for men because women might have the right to vote and the right to you know seek political office mm -hmm. but so much of this conversation still lies with men especially white men sort of taking that next step into you know doing their work around equity right so and i don't think we're there yet no and i think uh and by the way i'm just putting this out as a as an idea is for i can't speak for all white men 
there's a lot of them out there. Yeah, uh, sure is. And I'm not even certain if, uh, if this is accurate. So this is a, just a speculation is for women, uh, for people of color, for marginalized communities, it is a progress. It is viewed as a progress forward. We are gaining power or they are gaining power and moving forward in a zero sum mindset for yeah. white men. And it is not about progress forward unless you can take a larger, more, you know, broader view of society. But if, if it's about white male power, it, it is a, a loss of that power. Mm -hmm. um, so progress isn't viewed as gaining more rights or opportunities. We already had all the rights and the power and the and, and everything that went with it. So it is, I think, a different dynamic as a white male to be thinking about women's suffrage or minority rights because all of that is a, requires an abdication of, of this control that white males have, have had institutionally and, and culturally. So. And I think there's a lot to be said for, um, you know, in Korea, there's a, whole school of anti-racism training, um, courageous conversations about race, that if we start with race, everything else will follow. Or that um, if we develop our policies with the most marginalized in mind, that will naturally um, mm. ease and improve the situation for all of us. Mm. And so the situation of white men is certainly, um, I think, generally not one of success in America, right? Like we still, you know, we still have extreme poverty, we still have extreme violence, we still, yeah. still have extreme desperation among white men even. And so when we think about what it would mean to share power in a way that um, the most marginalized have an opportunity for success and a stake in the game, I think that would by necessity improve the lives of white men who are caught in this dynamic of always holding on to something that they don't actually have because really it's just a very few rich white men who have power in America. But that's, you know, that's an incredibly complex story to tell when we're all running around scared. Well, that's kind of the thought that's going through my head is and maybe in some ways I don't understand the situation because I come from enough groups that, um, or my identity crosses enough groups that when marginalized groups have received more power or, or more rights or more access, it has also improved my life, even if it wasn't directly aimed at improving my life. Um, so I've always been very grateful um, for, for the work of, um, uh, other, other people. Um, so maybe I don't fully understand the situation, but is it, how much is it a loss of, of actual power and how much is it just, we have been raised with such a scarcity mentality and such a definition of power of it's either or. Um, like even, 
even when I, I was I listened to to meetings at the local level about race, there's still this sense it's still even coach uh, couched in phrases of, well, if so and so gets more power, so and so loses power. Um, it still seems to be that kind of conversation. And I'm wondering how much is that really based in reality and how much of that is based in just how we have defined power for so many years. And it's a human created situation rather than an actual, you know, a scarcity human thing rather than an actual thing. And I think that's where um, so much of this conversation can get confused, especially lately, because there's an assumption that just because a woman is in power, she's going to be working on behalf of other women or marginalized people. And so it's, um, and I think that's not necessarily true. So there's a lot of, you know, I think there's a basic human rights, equal rights assumption that everyone should be able to access the political process and that's a good in and of itself, yes. And then there's sort of the next level of by electing women, historically marginalized folks, people of color, et cetera, that things will um, by necessity get better in the body politic. And I don't think that's necessarily true unless those folks who are now in power are willing to shift the conversation a little bit. If they're still gonna be stuck in the same paradigm of politics mm -hmm. that white men have built up, it's still gonna have essentially the same results. The conversations might be a little more complex but it's still gonna be sort of in that scarcity power grab um, mode. And the, I think the assumption that women are naturally more collaborative, um, we've seen in many places to be not true. So I think when we have these, you know, um, I think the assumption that a woman is gonna always work harder for, you know, marginalized women's rights is not, is not fair, you know, we see what we're seeing in Vermont right now is we have a lot of, you know, or nationally, we have a lot of women running under the Republican ticket. We had a woman leading the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, right, so if the institutions designed by white males were designed to be competitive, where power is zero sum, you either, mm -hmm. uh, if you gain it, someone else must have lost it. Means anyone who rises in the system has had to conform to the system to get into it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's the difference between running for office and being the um, the organizer or the advocate out on the street is at some point you have to come into the institution. Uh, and, and I expect most people go into the institution thinking they can change it and they can, but it is it is incremental change. And, and unfortunately, the, as much as they want to change the institution, the institution changes them. They, they do have to conform. Um, and that confirmation is back to that power competition model, which is, I mean, our whole system of government was built on, purposely built on a balance of power, um, an invitation to struggle is what our government is, um, of competing interests that, uh, and so bringing another group into that power model, whether, and it's, it's interesting how we've moved from gender to talking, um, uh, 
different ethnic minority uh, discussions as well, because really it's the same, it's kind of the same dynamic going on. There are, there is white males <laughs> and then there's kind of all these other groups or, or identity uh, tracks, I guess you could call them, trying to get there into that same conversation. And I think what happens when we think about people being changed by the system, which we all are, um, it becomes very hard for new folks entering that political process um, to find role models of what could be different because especially folks, especially women who entered this process when it was even harder um, and angrier and meaner and there was, you know, um, more men you know, more colleagues pinching their, can I say ass on the radio? Yeah, you just did. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> when the sexual harassment and um, discrimination was much more, more overt and um, culturally acceptable than it is now. Though folks who got through that process were changed by it. Um, in very significant ways. And so it becomes harder for those coming up now to find role models of doing it differently because we don't, I don't necessarily need to fight those same fights that were fought before me because I get to you know, benefit from the legacy of that already happening. But it also means that I can't see people as a woman politician, and I even feel uncomfortable always calling myself a politician, I don't see those role models above me. And so we have 100 years of women's suffrage in Vermont, but the Vermont State House has, you know, two portraits of women, and the most of the images of women in that building are actually naked ones as part of the, you know, statuary and lamps. So when I'm looking for myself to see what I can do next, I am not surrounded by, um, symbols and examples of how to hold the power that the type of power that I want to hold that feels um, ethical and um, I don't even know the right word, yeah. but that is, you know, the other um, component of this is there's political power and then there's uh, the power of knowledge. So the opening of education, uh, higher education in particular, and it is it is interesting to me how, as we have opened up universities and more women and people of color and marginalized people have, and first generation college students have moved in to these spaces and begun to get education. It's probably overly simplistic, but it, it is notable how we suddenly value uh, or devalue experience and knowledge and expertise uh, and suddenly we're back to that gut feeling again. Of, I mean, this is what George Bush, um, George W. Bush kind of ran on that, well, I feel it in my gut ethos and and definitely with uh, Donald Trump. Um, we're seeing this kind of doing away with the expert. Uh, it's almost like now that all these other people have moved into these educational spaces that provide another means of gaining power and access, we gotta, we've gotta minimize that the, the role of education. So now that non-white men are experts, yes. um, we have to stop yeah. thinking about experts. And so what we do is we vote for, you know, to move back into the election conversation, right? We like vote for the nice guy. Or the, um, 
the common sense guy. Yeah, yeah. I could have um, someone we want to drink a beer with, right? Yeah. Um, that's something that people said a lot in the last election. You know, that's someone I would want, about Governor Scott, that's someone I would want to drink a beer with. It's like, okay, but I don't know if like beer is necessarily how government functions or how good governance works. It's in fact a whole other set of skills. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I have so many thoughts going through my head right now. Um, but what, and, and this is my, my right brained circular thinking coming up here, but what I keep coming across as we're talking, I keep flashing on an ad from a cigarette company and I can't even remember the, the company's name, but they always um, would have some kind of, like on one side of it, some kind of historical picture, um, period piece of, you know, women back in the 1800s, women back in the 20s, whatever. And then, you know, of the time, the modern woman. And they were trying to make a statement on on women's progress. But the tagline was, You've come a long way, baby. Mm-hmm. And I always found That's that contradiction so fascinating. Um, and I think it's a contradiction that a lot of people move through, um, especially women, of, yes, you've come so far, but um, then then you hit the, you hit the baby. Um, <laughs> the, the baby part of the tagline. Um, We're doing right to that last word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's just what I keep coming back to in this conversation as we're we're talking, and I, I guess it's um, I don't quite know what to do with it, but it's it's where my my brain keeps going back to those contradictions. So I think there's um, the way that plays itself out in Vermont politics is really interesting because we do we have a huge number of women holding elected office in Vermont, um, especially in our county. And that's really exciting. And we have, you know, a whole bunch of women on the lieutenant governor's ticket, um, both parties, all mm-hmm. three parties, actually. Um, we have a woman in the governor's race. And we have women in many of the leadership positions in the House and Senate. So we have a lot of women chairs. Um, we have women chairs of every money committee. We have a female speaker of the house, both majority leaders. But I think it's really interesting to think about how in the Vermont State House, given that we don't have any staff, mm-hmm. um, there's so much work associated with those positions hmm. um, and very little day-to-day power mm-hmm. and really not that much prestige. Very few people know who their state representative is. Um, very few people know who the chairs of the money committees are. It's not like someone's gonna be impressed with you when you go to the grocery store. Um, you know, these are essentially volunteer positions. And we've seen historically, you know, because of our citizen legislature. And so what we've seen, you know, throughout history is that yes, women are often um, have significant leadership in volunteer positions. Mm-hmm. and are moving up through volunteer positions. And in a lot of ways, politics in Vermont is the politics of volunteer positions until you get to the statewide level when it is an a paid job. 
Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much where our ceiling is. Hmm. Is once it becomes a salary with staff. Interesting. Once you start having wielding power and influence. Right. Um, Sorry to do this to you, John and Emily. We have to take a quick break to hear from our underwriters. Uh, so we're going to to break right now on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM and we will do that in a moment. We're back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters. I am on the show today with Emily Kornheiser as well as John Hagen. And as we need to mention, the views and opinions expressed on this show are ours and not those of the radio station. So if you have to send strong comments to anyone, send them to us, not the radio station. And then um, to Olga, actually. Yeah, send them to me because, you know, I stress out about them and then I'm like, and I put them in context and turn them into conversations. Um, So for those who were not on Facebook Live and watching us in the break, um, I just wanna bring back into the second half of the session kind of what I'm sitting with right now, which is, as I was saying to John and Emily, I'm really feeling kind of, for lack of a better term, my class. And um, as we're having this conversation, because I grew up in small towns, small Vermont hill towns, farming towns, um, and my situation to the power structure, even the power structure of Brattleboro, which is much more urban compared to where I grew up, even if it's rural in the rest of the state. Um, and, you know, the, the white men, you know, my family is, is very mixed, but the, the, the parts of my family that are white, I would definitely say they are the men that Emily was talking about who don't access the system, who are told because they're white, they should, but they're actually not part of the over the bigger power structure. Um, you know, and, and where my family sits in, in class and how I'm a second generation college student. Um, and most of my family up until my generation did not speak English. I'm the first one to fully speak English with the exception of my ancestry that's English heritage or Irish heritage. Um, Finnish and French were were the main languages spoken in my family. Um, and so just kind of sitting with that and sitting with uh, really feeling how, uh, where am I going with this? Um, my relationship to power structures and how I have had to work them in my life um yeah and i don't know where that's going it's just kind of what i'm sitting with right now you know in thinking about this we have a incredibly competitive power structure for controlling political power and it is dominated and has been by white males so but the system has to maintain itself if it doesn't then you have a revolution and so if you're in the power position and you're holding it, you need to keep all the white males who aren't winning still happy and believing that they're part of the system. Because if you don't, then then you end up with revolution. So what do you do? You, 
you tell them you tell the 70 percent or however many percent that are never going to have the, the power and the affluence and, and everything that's promised um hey at least you're not these other people you're not the women you're not the minorities and that's the relief valve so as that pressure builds up among frustrated white males who are told hey we are the holders of the power but somehow i'm you know, feeling overtaxed and overburdened and undervalued and not heard and have no power. Um, instead of that angst and that pressure going up and addressing the structural problems, it goes out through a safety valve, which is, I still have control over women, minorities. Um, and and if they get any control at all, that, that undermines my very position as a white male in the lower social economic class. It, it takes away the one thing that I had left. And that's something that in Vermont, I see the Republican Party addressing really effectively. Um, I don't know if effectively is actually the right word at all. That's something that I see the Republican Party finding a communities that the Republican Party finds real resonance with. And I because of the way democratic power is concentrated in Chittenden County, um, often amongst those with wealth, because that is how you know power behaves, um, we don't often see democratic candidates with the skills to navigate sort of that other side of helping everyone access power, um, with naming that you know what hurts women and people of color is also what hurts poor white men. And so that real paradigm of, you know, lifting all boats or whatever other terrible idiom we want to use um, <coughs> is I think what is going to be required if we're going to have a Vermont politic that genuinely does work for all of us, not just the select few. And it's going to need to meet the needs of folks in the hill towns that have felt forgotten for the entire hundred years of women's suffrage and before that. You know, Frank Bryan has these, you know, great pieces about how the Depression never, never came to Vermont because it was always here. And we've, you know, we see our economic cycles traveling so far behind those of the rest of the country. And so we have an opportunity to have political resonance with those ideas and bring everyone into the story. But we need to be able to speak a different language than the traditional language of political power and the fight, or we're going to continue to leave, you know, our hill towns behind. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just as an example, um, if this helps things be more concrete, I was thinking about it the other day. Um, and I was just thinking Brattleboro compared to some of the other smaller towns in Wyndham County. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, you look at how the state shows up in Brattleboro. It rents property. It has services here. Uh, it awards grants. It does make demands like taxes and such like that. But it, it shows up in multiple ways. There's a lot of towns in Vermont that the state only shows up unless it wants more money or it wants to tell the town they're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the only time the state shows up. And, and I think that that just um, can highlight people's different experiences 
um, in Wyndham County to the state level power, at least. And if that helps. Thank you. Last week, we talked about how um, when you are devolving power responsibility, you also have to devolve resources, including, you know, human resources, financial resources, et cetera, so that those small towns, if they need to make decisions themselves, they also need to have the resources to do them so that people aren't um, left with just essentially like criticism and money grabs. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also see that in the way a lot of politics is conducted because we have, you know, we don't have representation. We historically, we had one representative from each town in our House of Representatives. And from what I understand, it was actually often used as the way of getting like the most obnoxious guy out of town um, <laughs> and being sent upstate. That's like the story in the state house um, when it was that much larger, you know. Um, that works. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, who knows what it was like up there then. But what we, when we've moved to a um, more reasonable sized legislature, which is still quite big what we see is that you know in some folks represent seven towns and you know senators represent so many small towns and so if we think of politics as a power grab and who can get more votes just from their you know strategic demographic in order to beat with their win number you know the other party then the attention is going to be concentrated the easiest place it is to get rather than in a process of real collaborative politic and collaborative decision-making to really um, have someone who best represents the interests of each of those communities. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, something that Meg Mott has talked about a lot. Like, what does it mean to bring a more deliberative process to our conversations um, in our small towns? Mm -hmm. But when we take sort of the politics of DC, um, or sort of national level deal making. And we, while we don't have polling, we still have all of those other pieces around win numbers and. Um... You know, I, um, I come to back to that, um, that term that I, uh, a colleague of mine had, had brought to me of invitation to struggle. Um, mm -hmm. And that that's how our government is designed. And so it's interesting how this is playing out. Our discussion started with gender. Uh, it is moved through uh, social economic uh, geography um, and ethnicity and race. Um, but all of them are struggles about, hey, this system that we've set up uh, of first past the post or you know, the, may the best man win um, has, has left everyone else losing. Mm -hmm. So we have a system that is purposely designed for a select few to win and everyone else to strive, uh, but really um, not win. Mm -hmm. One yeah. other thing, oh, I'm sorry, keep on going. No, go ahead. One of the things I really appreciate about um, what you've been doing as the Wyndham County Democratic Chair is your get out the vote work um, is really a cross party. So. Um, it's very nonpartisan in that you're just saying like, reminding everyone like, just go vote. You know, we will, we'll figure out what comes from there, but this is your first right and we're here to preserve this first right. 
and the celebration, the um, Centennial Alliance celebration and conversations that you two are organizing are absolutely nonpartisan. And so I think that creates a really interesting dynamic and opportunity um, for more people to get connected. And, and, you know, as a Democrat, I do have my bias. It is not lost on me that when I bring up issues such as, hey, let's get everyone out to vote. Let's recognize women's suffrage. Let's get people filling out the census. I have to defend those as, I have to defend the fact that those are nonpartisan statements. They, they are not about uh, which party you're from. They're just a general statement of, Yes, I clearly want to turn out the Democratic vote. That is my role as the Democratic chair. But at a more fundamental level, it's just getting Vermonters out there to vote, to, to own that power, that, that little bit of power that they have. Because if they don't own that, they're not going to get any more. I did want to give you my five-minute warning that I, I will have to leave in five minutes, and I apologize for that. No, that's that's fine. Um, I'm going to hold my comment and say in the you know in the last five minutes before you have to go, uh, is there are there any other thoughts or or um, insights you want to bring to the conversation? I have a thought and insight I want John to bring to the conversation. So last it. night when we were emailing about what we were going to talk about today, um, I said, well, we should talk about like why the white guy is the one you know doing this suffrage centennial alliance um conversation <laughs> and so and so asked you like what like you know what's it like to be a white guy doing this and you said you know that's something yeah. that i spent a lot of time thinking about yeah you know when i first heard the question i was like oh that's pretty funny and then i got to thinking about it and thought wow um first of all white guy is an identity is just an interesting concept in itself. Um, uh, it's very rarely used as a qualifier for white male doctor or white male professor. I mean, just professor, doctor. Yeah. We don't need the white male. We don't because everyone assumes that that's 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 who it is. Uh, if they control power, if it's a governor, or from my military background, if it's pilot, we all we all have that image already in place. So. So um, it is, you know, kind of back to what I was saying earlier, when your entire, and boy, speaking for all white males. Ooh. No, just um, speak for yourself, John. Speak okay. for yourself. Good, That's good. one of the things so, that white men often do. They defer um, personal conversation to this um, every person thing. So oh, thank just you. <laughs> speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, speak for myself. I retired uh, from the military a few years ago and moved to Wyndham County. I grew up in Burlington. I have spent only since 2014 as a resident in Guilford. Uh, I got active in the Democratic political party, Democratic party in the county, probably around 2015 or 16. And somehow I'm now the party chair. And it's not lost on me and I'm a white male, and I moved into that role. Uh, in the same way, with very little um, time or experience here, I ended up as the a board chair for a large, uh, a nonprofit in the area. Um, and there is, part of me thinks, 
Well, yeah, I, I, maybe I bring some competence or maybe I bring a skill set that people are looking for. But then I have to think also, well, what else am I bringing into this? Is why wasn't there someone else uh, who wasn't white and male uh, invited into that position? And so, um, and I, you know, uh, um, I've had people push on me and say, well, why, you know, you're looking for more minorities or more, um, more diversity in your, your county committee. Uh, why don't you have someone else run it? And my thought is, yeah, why don't I? Um, but it's hard as a white male to figure out what do you do? Do you walk away <laughs> and say, okay, I'm just going to leave uh, the position vacant and let someone else fill it. Is that, uh, is that the role or how, I guess for, for me as a white male thinking about how you share power in a system that's designed not to share power mm -hmm. uh, I think is, that's, is a sticky trap. Or, or I think, a, yeah. I think what we've seen um, for, you know, hundred years, a thousand years, is that a lot of the unseen labor of politics, of movements, of households is done by women and people of color. And so what does it mean to be a person in leadership who does the unseen labor um, and the voice comes from someone else or the decision-making comes from someone else? What does it mean to truly um, become a servant leader? And I think that is really how we start to open up these spaces in a different way. Because just, you know, creating a vacuum, likely another white man's going to step right into that vacuum, right? Um, and it doesn't do anyone else who's being served by that coalition any favors if there's a power vacuum. So what does it mean to hold that power in a way that is deeply collaborative, that isn't leaving someone else to do all of the... Um, to do the day-to-day -day labor. You know, we see across, um, certainly in our own county committee, but I think across, you know, nonprofits and organizations that the clerk or the secretary um, role, the taking notes role, et cetera, that's, you know, yeah, that's where so much of the labor lies. That's often um, done by women. Like I said, you know, um, committee chairs, um, majority leaders, that's where so much of the work of governance and politics happens. And so I think that's really one of the interesting questions. So how does it, what does it mean to hold power as just the person who does the work, but not the person who gets the glory? Yeah. I would love to stay on for this conversation. Um, I, I do have a, another meeting I have to get to. So I'm not, I'm not backing out when things start getting, uh, we'll have to continue this. But Emily, will. Olga, thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. Well, Thanks, thank you John. for joining us and for the great conversation. Have a good day, John. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. Yeah, what, what I'm sitting with is while we started, as John mentioned, with the 19th Amendment, what we really are talking about is power. <laughs> and I'm really struck by... I, you know, I thank both of you for making it so clear that our system is built on competition um, because even on the local level, when we are talking about changing systems, 
how our default, regardless of whether someone is in a position of power, such as the select board, mm-hmm. or whether they are in a position of advocacy, such as um, a community group, um, I'm thinking of last night's select board meeting, there's still this default to fight. And there's still this default of someone's the enemy. Um, and I'm just, I, I'm thinking also what you said, Emily, about, you know, how do we change the power structure so it's collaborative and who's, who's doing the work, who's getting the glory. Um, and yeah, it seems to me that at that core, that need to compete and fight is the first thing that probably needs to shift. Um, because the folks who aren't part of the fight are the folks with the real power because we can't even access them. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't mean this in some kind of like George Soros anti-Semitic like conspiracy theory way. I mean it like, you know, Bill Gates is not part of the conversation, right? right? Like right. the people with the billions of dollars are doing their own thing and they are collaborating. They are not fighting. So remembering that, remembering that, you know, I'm having a conversation with a um, constituent about um, police reform and um, improving social services. And they suggested that legislators take a pay cut in order to make that happen. And I tried to explain- What kind of pay cut? Well, I tried to explain what are, and I think people don't know that, you know, you know that congressional members get, you know, lovely salaries and lovely mm-hmm. benefits for life and people perhaps don't realize that state representatives don't we've talked about that on the show mm-hmm. before but just the idea that you know because i i am proposing a solution it means that the um the pieces of that so the sacrifice committed connected to that solution must come from me and my body mm-hmm. um or i see a problem so i have to be the one with the solution rather than we're sort of putting it all into this scrum and instead of fighting it out, we're sorting through it together and finding shared goals. So, and again, you know, like that's, you know, Robert's rules of order sets us up for that. Um, The -hmm. way that we vote, um, you know, I think there are few races that that are um, in the primary, which is on Tuesday. The primary is on Tuesday, everyone. Please go vote. It is too late to mail in your ballot. So if you still have a ballot sitting on your hallway table, um, like my partner does, please fill it out. And either in Brattleboro, you can put it in the drop box that's behind the town offices, or you can make an appointment with your town clerk, or you can bring it in on, um, or on Tuesday, you can just go in and vote like regular, like it's not COVID, except everything will be sanitary, but polls are still open on Tuesday. So please get your vote in. Um, I think they're, you know, certainly the lieutenant governor's race, when I talk to people about who they're going to vote for there, I see a lot of folks who instant runoff voting would be a very attractive um, thing in that race. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one way to sort of minimize the winners, losers, like we have to pull out this, you know, clear fight. It's that we're really talking about pros and cons and, well, if not this, then this, and how can we get here? And um, there are a lot of ways that we could shift structures if we were willing to examine them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. And, you know, one thing I think we we need to sort out, too, is this sense of competition. And I think sometimes we confuse the competition and, as as John was saying, the invitation to struggle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, to me, they're not the same thing. The invitation to struggle is happens when as many points of views and experiences and backgrounds and histories come together mm-hmm. and work something out. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's very different from winner takes all. Mm-hmm. And how do we make sure that if we get rid of one, we're not getting rid of the other? Because um, I, I think, think sometimes that's what's happened. I agree. And I think sometimes we see that, you know, we all have so many things to be angry and frustrated about in our lives, um, as well as so many things to be grateful and passionate about. But so much of what fuels activism or the story that we want our politicians to tell mm-hmm. is based on anger and frustration. Yeah. And so, or unnuanced hope. Those are sort of our two choices. And so we have movements that are fueled by being against something instead of for something, because it's incredibly difficult to add nuance to the for something. Mm-hmm. And so we see people coming in anger, but that is not, that does not sustain. No, it's a it great motivator. It can get you mm-hmm. off the ground, yeah. but it doesn't build policy very well. No. And so my favorite example of this was the justice center that was going to be built in Bellows Falls. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, was that five years ago, 10 years ago? Um, and the whole community came out and said, you did not consult us in this process. Stop now. And it was a level of civic activism in Bellows Falls and Rockingham that um, we have not seen the likes of. Mm-hmm. And yet what happened to the, all those folks after? Like, what would it take to say, okay, we didn't want this, but we really want you know, more community development, more economic development, more opportunities for folks in our community that this was um, on some level supposed to address. Yeah. So, but because that whole thing started in anger and never had the opportunity to transform it dispersed again instead of um, being sustained and i think we really need to look at what can sustain our spirits in these fights rather than just what motivates them Mm -hmm. yes and and what i think we're very good at identifying what we don't want as you said Mm -hmm. but we're not as good at identifying what could come after Um, and, and what the world looks like after, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think some of that is our structure. I was thinking last night when I was watching the select board, uh, meeting, working on, on the RFP around public safety, that I was really watching this, you know, this discussion and feeling like it needed another step before it came to the select board Mm -hmm. like it needed you know how so many state and federal um organizations when they're putting something together they had a they have a public comment period Mm -hmm. like it it needed something like that before it came to the select board um and it just it was reminding me last night how so many of our systems are centered around making a decision, but not centered around the conversation that needs to lead up to making that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, it still felt very much like the select board was in over here and the community group was over here, but there was nothing like in between mm-hmm. to make it to the RFP. And I wish I could go, um, I rarely want a time machine because I feel like, you know, as a Jewish woman, like, 
probably there are not a lot of times in history that were better for me than now. Um, but one place I would want a time machine for is to go back to the suffrage centennial and be part of those, con those multiracial conversations to understand what happened at the moment that the black women were left behind. Mm -hmm. um, were apologies made, were deals struck, or were people just left in the dust? Um, and what did that mean for what came next? Because mm -hmm. I think there's so much to learn from that particular moment in history and from all of those moments when a compromise was made and who the compromise benefited and who suffered from it and how those conversations happened. Because all, you know, because compromise is essential to um, life. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. And on that note, we are unfortunately out of time. So Emily, do you have a toast for today? To voting. Yes. It's the best. It might not be the best we can do, but it is the bare minimum. Here, here. Voting is harm reduction. Here, here. Glad lots of people can do it here in Vermont. Yes. And remember to get your ballot in on the 11th for the primary because yes. that is step one to the general election. Emily, Emily, where can people find you if they have questions or concerns? EmilyKornheiser.org, eKornheiser at gmail.com, eKornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. I'm realizing that I say ledge, but it's actually probably leg, just short for legislature. And um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Fantastic. And you can find the Vermontitude. You can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on the Vermontitude Facebook page, the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, and at 2 p.m. on Friday on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye.